Welcome to the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Wrights. I load freight with a forklift. I have been a bus driver and a substitute teacher, and I am a history graduate student. I am an ordained pastor, and I hope to become a history professor. In this podcast, we will explore history, theology, pop culture, current events, and perhaps a few other topics along the way. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The opening and closing music is Lo-Fi Summer Background by Vladislav Kurnikov from Pixabay. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. However, if you enjoyed this episode, I would appreciate it if you liked and subscribed to Blue Collar Scholar in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast distributor. Writing a review, leaving a five-star rating, and sharing links in your social media platform is also much appreciated. Thank you for joining us. Hello friends and family. I'm here once again to give you a short reminder that I have been using Bible Project videos to help introduce the books that we're discussing in our New Testament class at this time. So if you want to use that amazing wealth of information, I would it, I would encourage you to either download the Bible Project app, which gives you access to all of their video resources, or else you can go to YouTube or Google and then you can can search for the Bible Project and then you can put in the name of a book that you want to watch an overview of or you can browse their many many topics they've covered in their videos anyway on today's lecture we looked at the videos for Titus 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy following those videos we had the lecture that I am presenting right now so today we're going to discuss Paul's last letters, the pastoral epistles. But we need to be honest, a lot of scholars do not accept that Paul wrote any of these letters. So let's look into why. It's an issue called pseudonymity. Pseudo meaning false. Anonymous means without name. Pseudo means synonymous means false name. So the idea is that even though Paul's name is attached to the beginning of each of these letters, that he actually didn't have anything to do with it. And the theory is that these were written probably a generation after Paul died. Probably not too much later than that. Uh, There's reasons to believe that this was still 1st century, late 1st century, or early 2nd century. But we need to be honest and say that there are virtually no secular scholars that accept that Paul wrote the pastoral epistles. And that's what these three letters are. Titus... 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. I put them in that order because 2 Timothy really ought to be the last book you read in Paul. It's, it's, the, it's the swan song. It's the last thing he wrote. And it feels like it when you read 2 Timothy. It's, it's, a, it's the end. And even if, even if the secular scholars are right and that Paul didn't write these, whoever did write it wanted to make it seem like this was Paul's last thing he wrote while he was in prison. It, it feels like a swan song. It feels like somebody uh, announcing I'm about to die for all of this good stuff I've done. My opinion, which is about as worth, about as much as you could throw it, I suppose, my my opinion is that this is a little bit of a bandwagon effect. I I mentioned earlier, like when we were talking about Romans and Galatians and 1 Corinthians and, and a few other books, that 
most scholars, secular or Christian, will say, oh yeah, Paul wrote those. There's, there's seven books that tend to, be, tend to have no argument whatsoever in say, saying Paul wrote those. Uh, but you'll still have some scholars who will say, oh, you know, I have this alternate theory. But no bandwagon effect has, has happened, so most scholars are willing to accept that. So what happens is, then the scholars accept those seven books, and I can never remember the list of all seven, but I think it's uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, Colossians, and Philemon. Those are the books that scholars are sure that Paul wrote. So then they assume that, that, those, that all the other books need to line up with those seven, or else they weren't written by Paul. And so every time they see any kind of discrepancy, and, and, and there's all kinds of reasons why there might be differences. But anytime they see a difference or a discrepancy, they'll say, well, yeah, Paul didn't write that. That's, that's pseudo-Paul. That's, that's pseudonymous. And it creates a little bit of a bandwagon effect, especially when it comes to the book of Ephesians and the pastoral epistles, Titus, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy. The bandwagon has become so strong that most... For most secular scholars, it becomes kind of a litmus test as to whether you're a serious scholar or whether you're a Christian as, as to whether or not you're going to accept that Paul wrote, wrote these books or not. So let's be fair to them. Why do these scholars believe that Paul did not write these books? Well, if you look at the pastoral epistles, Titus and the books to Timothy, there are 306 Greek words in those three letters that do not appear in any of the other letters of Paul. Even the ones that the scholars are a little iffy on, like 2 Thessalonians and Ephesians. Set those aside for a second and lump all the rest of Paul's letters together and then the Pauline letters in, in another pile. There are 306 unique words just for the pastoral epistles. And in English, that doesn't strike us as much, but we've talked about this before, is... Greek is a much more expressive language. There's there, your ability to mix around with syntax and word choice is much greater. Uh, and so having so many unique words is kind of a big deal. And if you look at the 306 unique words that, that are used in the pastoral epistles, you'll find a lot of overlap between them and the second century church fathers. And so there does seem to be, on the surface, there seems to be uh, some relationship between those letters, especially First and Second Timothy, with the letters that we already know were written in the second century, in the years that begin with one. And then you have some words like antechomai that are used differently between Paul and the pastorals. So First Thessalonians, which is indisputably Pauline, the word antechomai is used to mean to aid or to help. And then the same word is used in Titus 1.9, but there it means to hold fast. Then there are significant stylistic differences, but interestingly enough, there are enough similarities that the scholars still assume that pseudo-Paul was either a disciple of Paul himself or was a dedicated Pauline scholar of some kind. Somebody who knew enough about Paul's style that he could emulate it pretty well. And then probably the, the best argument is that Titus and 1 Timothy seem to describe an, a church organizational structure that really hadn't developed very well in the first century. The highly organized church really starts to develop in the second and third century. 
So what is my response then if I do not accept pseudonymity? Well, I don't. I believe that Paul wrote them. So let's look at it. Here's my response. Paul uses about 2,200 words in, in all of his other letters. So you take the pastorals in one camp and you take all the rest in the others. There's about 2,200 words here. So having a, a, a unique collection of 306 just is not that big of a deal. It ends up being, doing the math real quick in my head, what, about 15% uh, unique words? But that can be accounted just by pointing out the different audiences. With the exception of Philemon, he's always writing to a church uh, in the other letters. And with Titus and First Timothy, he's writing more directly to an individual with instructions on how to lead a church. And so let me give you an example. So if I were writing a letter to my professor about historiography, the, the study of the study of history, and I had a question. And then later that same day, I wrote a letter to my best friend Mark uh, to, talking about the disastrous Chiefs game last Sunday. The chances are I'm not going to use any of the same words except I and 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 words like that. I mean, I'm going to use words like nickel defense that I'm not going to use at all in historiography and I'm going to use terms like primary sources that I'm not going to use at all when I'm talking about the chiefs. Different audiences, different topics, different situations a lot of times will result in completely different terminology. And sometimes it can work... Well, let me, Here's a bad example. This is just the one that popped in my head. The word manifest. What do you guys think of when you hear Manifest. As a history guy, I, I tend to think of manifest destiny. So the understanding uh, amongst the first four or five generations of Americans that it was our duty to conquer, or not, I don't know if conquer is the right word, but to assimilate the whole continent until the United States becomes a continental country. That was our manifest destiny. So if, I, if I'm in a history class, that's almost always how I'm going to use that word. Uh, or if I'm watching the news, or if I'm talking about the news, I'm... I suppose maybe if I'm talking about a plane that went down, you would talk about the manifest being the list of freight and people that were on that ship. Uh, but speaking of freight, the way I usually use the word manifest is that's the way we describe our, our sheet when, when I'm at work at Old Dominion. They'll hand us a manifest, and we click off as we move stuff from one trailer to another. And so the fact that Paul uses the word antekomai differently between letters isn't that significant. Not really. It just indicates that he's using words differently for different occasions and different audiences. We've discussed this already, but style differences can be easily answered by the use of amanuenses. And I've gotten so much better at pronouncing that. Amanuensis. So Paul, probably, probably he uses an amanuensis for all of his letters, for whatever reason. He may, perhaps he has arthritis, maybe he's just so darn busy. Uh, or maybe he has he has enough young men who are wanting to serve him that he can put them to, to good use. Like, I, I got a job for you. You know how to read and write Greek? Get over here. I'll, I'll put you to good use. So he seems to use an amanuensis for, I'd say, at least half and maybe all of his letters. But here's the thing. In Greek, there's more options with word choice, syntax, sentence structure than there is in English. So amanuenses don't really function like a stenographer or court reporter, where it's, it probably is not quite as easy to go word for word as you're writing down as it would be in English for a stenographer who's writing down every word in, in court. But here's the thing. If I went to a court right now, 
and I took a voice recorder and I recorded the whole thing, assuming I, I could legally do so, say the court knew I was going to do it ahead of time. And then later I compared the stenographer's report. You know what I'm going to find? I'm going to find some differences. Not many, but a few. And so if Paul's writing Romans through Tertius, and he's writing 1 Corinthians through Sosthenes, and let's say he's writing 1 Timothy through Luke, the fact is you're, you have three different fellows who have three different writing styles perhaps, maybe different levels of education. You know, Luke is a, a, a physician, so chances are he's had a higher level of classical education than the others. We can see that when we look at the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is a better written text than Mark or Matthew. It just is. Luke seems to have a better grasp of the Greek language than the other guys do. And so if you account for the use of amanuenses, then stylistic differences don't tend to bother me as much anymore. Especially if you count that maybe Paul wrote some of these letters. Ironically, I think the best candidate for the ones he wrote with his own hand would be the pastorals. The ones that secular scholars are absolutely convinced he didn't write at all. But I think it's, it's a better case to say that he, since he's, he's just writing to a friend, that perhaps he actually sat down with nobody in the room and he did the writing. And that would explain differences in style as well. As far as the church structures describing between, uh, that Paul seems to be describing a church structure that's closer to the second century than the first, or as far as the word similarities between church fathers of the second century and the pastoral epistles, which all seem to suggest that the pastorals were written later, I think it's important for us to remember that the second century church would be intentionally emulating Paul in almost every way. Because by the second century, Paul has basically emerged as the key apostle. And that's no discredit to John or Peter or any of the others. But Paul's missionary work, especially in Europe, will have a greater lasting effect than any Christian not named Jesus of Nazareth. And so by the second century, it would not surprise me if the church structure he describes in 1 Timothy and Titus would become absolutely imperative to our 2nd century people who are putting churches together. Say, this is the way Paul described it, this is the way we have to do it. Or likewise, your 1st century or your 2nd century writers like Clement, if he's writing a letter to uh, the church in Rome, it wouldn't surprise me at all if he starts to emulate Paul's writing style. He will have wanted to emulate the greatest apostle. Needless to say, or nevertheless, we need to acknowledge that many secular scholars are convinced that the pastoral epistles are not Pauline. But from this point on, I will proceed as if they are. Alright, so here's the order we're going to go for the rest of the night. We're going to start with Titus, and then we're going to do the letters of to Timothy, which is backwards in your Bible. In the Bible, they put Timothy first and then Titus. I'm not entirely sure why they did that. I'm Assuming maybe because Timothy is more prominent in church history than Titus is, but they really should have ended Paul's letters with 2 Timothy. It's a clear bookend to Paul's entire life and ministry. Okay, so Titus. What about this guy? Well, he does not appear in the book of Acts. Timothy, by the way, does. He appears quite a bit in over five chapters between chapters, I want to say, I'll have it in the notes later so I'll correct myself if I'm wrong, but I want to say between Acts 16 and 20, Timothy appears quite a bit. He joins Paul's missionary 
endeavors and stays with him for a while. Titus is mentioned twice in the book of Galatians and eight times in the book of 2 Corinthians. So let's look at a couple of those. So here in Galatians, we'll read Titus in in the book of Galatians. This is Galatians chapter 2. Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. This is significant, because this means Titus then would be one of Paul's oldest, not oldest in terms of his actual personal age, but oldest in terms of from the very beginning of his ministry. Titus was there from the, from the very beginning of his public ministry, uh, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached, or which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running, or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Titus is mentioned quite a few times, eight times in Second Corinthians. Here's an example. This is Second Corinthians chapter eight. This is Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8, and in 16 it says, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but blah, 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 it keeps going on. And then later in 23, uh, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches, uh, a glory to Christ. So Titus is mentioned quite a bit, actually, in Second Corinthians. So at whatever point Paul is at in his ministry when he writes 2 Corinthians, Titus seems to be right there. In fact, it's possible that he is the actual letter carrier. Uh, We discussed that Phoebe was probably the letter carrier of Romans. And then, ooh, if I remember the video, the letter carrier to Colossians was Epaphras. Am I right? Does that sound familiar? And then he carried not only Colossians but also Philemon. To the, uh, he carried them at the same time to the same place because Philemon was in Colossae, or Colossae. And then Titus is mentioned one more time, and that is in 2 Timothy. Now, the 2 Timothy mention might be sad. Let's read it and see if you're seeing the same thing I see. 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting at verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. So here's the, here's the rub. It's obvious by the sentence structure that Demas is being singled out for abandoning Paul. And then Paul mentions where he is now. He's, he's in Thessalonica. But we don't know why Demas is in Thessalonica. Has he decided to separate and start his own ministry? Has he gone to Thessalonica to start a new non-Pauline church? Or has he abandoned the faith altogether? We're not entirely sure. All we know is 2 Timothy does not present Demas as a particularly good person anymore. But in the same sentence, it mentions that Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus has gone to Dalmatia, which is is modern-day Croatia. The sentence doesn't specifically say that Crescens and Titus has abandoned Paul. It is completely reasonable to read this as Demas has left, and the reason he's left is because he's abandoned me, and he's in Thessalonica. Separately, completely separate thought, 
Crescens and Titus are also gone. They should be here helping, but I sent them away. Or they felt the call of the Holy Spirit. Or for whatever, for whatever good reason, they're not here with me anymore. But it's equally possible. No, I wouldn't say equally possible. It's a, a less possibility, but still a possibility, that Titus and Crescens have also abandoned Paul. And, and that's sad. So here's to hoping that's not the case. So where is Titus ministering to? Well, by 2 Timothy, he has apparently gone to Croatia. But in the book of Titus, he's ministering to Crete. So here's the greater Greek world. And so Rome's up here. By the way, here is Croatia. So Dalmatia would be this coastline here. So here's the greater Greek world. And I've mentioned before that for in, in the ancient mind, Greece is not so much this landmass here that looks like an upside-down Maryland. It's actually this sea, the Adriatic Sea, and all of the cities and islands that surround it. That's what would have been considered Greece for, for ancient peoples. And so this big island right here is Crete. Not to be confused with Cy- Cyprus. Cyprus is, is, is a, another uh, culture altogether. Crete is a identifiably Greek island. But it's big and it's the furthest Greek island, so it's got a slightly different culture than uh, the rest of the islands. So here's a closer view of Crete. You have, and I'm not sure, I didn't, I didn't bother to look up what the capital is, but I think it's Heracleion, which is named after Hercules. This is where Hercules was supposed to have done one of his 12 uh, labors, one of his, his massive superhero feats. And then a lot of these, these indentions along the north coast are natural seaports, some of the best natural seaports on earth. So this is where Titus has set up doing ministry. So when is this letter written? Well, we don't actually know. Some scholars date it actually pretty early, n- noting, for instance, that Titus was mentioned as early as the first missionary journey that Titus was part of the of his ministry when Paul and Barnabas were still a team. And that was only on the first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas will separate for the second missionary journey and they never work together again. And so it's possible that Titus, and that might be one of the reasons Titus doesn't appear in the rest of Acts, because Paul goes ahead and sends him over to Crete. And then Titus could be a really early book that could be written at any point during Paul's ministry. I think its similarities to 1 Timothy make that unlikely. I think Titus is probably written later. Sometime probably around the late 50s or early 60s. Now, his mention in Galatians, that one that mentions him in connection with Barnabas, as well as 2 Corinthians, which is one of Paul's earlier works, uh, indicate that his association with Paul was, was pretty early. And for whatever reason, Luke doesn't choose to add Titus to the story in Acts, unlike Timothy, who is presented as a major player. Paul does not have any connection that we see with Crete, though, until Acts 27. And Acts is a 28-chapter book, so it's toward the end of the book. He has been arrested. He has had three trials in Jerusalem, in or near Jerusalem. He has appealed to Caesar, and he's being shipped to Rome. And he barely spends time in Crete as they they head out to what's going to be a disastrous shipwreck. 
he is under arrest the whole time, so he's not able to do a whole lot of ministry. However, I theorize that Paul may have directed Titus to go to Crete after this. That having, having been to Crete, looked around, noticed that it had these great natural harbors, which would mean that it would have these cities that were everything Paul's looking for. Multicultural, Jews live there, uh, all the opportunities to set up a ministry to the Jews that also reaches out to the Gentiles in a culturally significant city that is also economically significant. That's where Paul sets up all his work, are those kind of cities. So my guess is after seeing Crete, and he says, you know what, we need to do something about this, and he sends his old friend Titus to Crete. That's my theory, but it's just a theory. So take it with a grain of salt. So my best guess for when this book was written would be early 60s, maybe the year 60 or 61, or maybe 59, but somewhere in that range. Do we have any questions about Titus? Thanks to the video, I don't have to cover too much of the content of Titus. So, oh, by the way, for the podcast, I would encourage you guys to go to YouTube or Google, look up Bible Project, and then put in Titus, 1 Timothy, and 2 Timothy, and go look at those videos. Okay, so let's move on to 1 Timothy. The character of Timothy is introduced in Acts 16, and he is a he plays an important part through Acts 20, where he seems to no longer be part of the equation during Paul's trials. He's either off doing ministry, or for whatever reason, he is he is separated from from what's going on. Or maybe he's there the whole time, but Luke just doesn't happen to mention him. Like Titus. Titus is there for the first missionary journey. He just doesn't happen to get mentioned. But at, at a certain point, Timothy re-enters Paul's orbit while Paul is in prison. Because, and I'm talking now about Paul's first imprisonment in Rome at the end of Acts. As Acts is closing, Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Because Paul is mentioned in Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And those are three of the books that are written right during that imprisonment time, at the end of Acts. Paul sends Timothy to minister in the city of Corinth. That's in 1 Corinthians 4.17. 1 Corinthians 4... I'll start with 16 since it's there. Therefore, I exhort you, be imitators of me. For this reason I have sent to you Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So Timothy is sent to Corinth as a missionary, or as a minister, in 1 Corinthians. And then later we know that Timothy is with Paul when Paul writes the book of Romans and Paul is in Corinth. So at this point then, Timothy is probably living in Corinth and, and he, Paul might be staying at Timothy's house. So in Romans chapter 16 it says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater. Or Sosipater. I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce that. But here's, significantly, Timothy is actually a co-author of Scripture. He co-authored six books. First and Second Thessalonians, Second Corinthians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Timothy, a co-author of Scripture, was half Jewish. And significantly, he got circumcised. Now that's despite all of what Paul said about circumcision. 
So Timothy was an adult male, half Greek, who was not circumcised. But since Paul and Timothy wanted to reach Jews for Christ, Timothy went ahead and undergone the ritual of circumcision as an adult, which would scare the living daylights out of me. I would not want to go through that process as an adult. But it's the weaker brother principle. It's the same thing of if if you're trying to reach a person who doesn't eat pork for Christ, then maybe don't have a bacon sandwich while you're while you're talking to them, kind of thing. If you want to reach Jews for Christ and you are half Jewish and you're uncircumcised, you're, you've already you've already written off your chance of reading Jew, re, uh, reaching Jews. You might as well go reach somebody else if you're not willing to to do that. So even though Paul spends a lot of time talking about how you don't need to be circumcised, and if you get circumcised because you think you need to to be saved, then you've you've basically circumcised the gospel. It's you you've invalidated it. You've emasculated it. It's uh, despite all that, Timothy probably under Paul's instruction decides to get circumcised, and then at some point Timothy seems to take up ministry in Ephesus. My guess would be maybe as early as when Paul is going to Jerusalem and he gets arrested. Because if you remember, during that trip back home, back to Jerusalem, he comes close enough to Ephesus that he invites the Ephesian elders to come meet him. And it's described as a very emotional meeting. There are tears all around. Both Paul and the elders of Ephesus are, are heartbroken that they're not going to see each other again. It might be at that point that Paul decides to send Timothy to minister in Ephesus in his place. That would explain why Timothy's not around for the rest of the book of Acts. It could have been then, it could have been later, but for whatever reason, Timothy takes up the leadership role in the Ephesian church. Now, interestingly enough, once you get to the tail end of the first century, John, the Apostle John, who we haven't talked about yet, he'll actually take up that role in in Ephesus. So he'll actually take up a role in a church that was started by Paul. Now, the video talked a lot about the content of Timothy, 1 Timothy, but we do need to talk a little bit about the discussions about women's role in 1 Timothy, especially, and I don't have this on video, so let me look it up real quick. There's one of the most questionable verses in, in the whole Bible. Because, questionably because it, it doesn't make sense. 1 Timothy 2.15 But women will be Oh, or the New American Standard says preserved. Interesting. Let's go ahead and read it their way. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. The New International Version says, but women shall be saved through childbearing. It's such a weird verse. And no one really knows what Paul's saying here, especially if you follow his train of thought. Because whatever whatever the role bearing of children has to do here, it's tempered by faith, love, and sanctity. So Paul's not making some kind of weird Gnostic idea that women's only role is as a child factory. That that's, that's women's only purpose as humans is to create more humans. Or for else otherwise you wouldn't need to worry about all that other. Unless perhaps Paul is saying that women will preserve, this is off the wall, but let me run with it, that women will preserve or save humanity by bearing children 
And, oh, by the way, if you bear children, you need to continue in love, sanctity, and faith, and self-restraint, which are good tools to have in a toolbox if you're going to be a good mother. That's a possibility, but any interpretation of this verse is nothing but possibilities. Furthermore, if you look in chapter 3, you'll see that Paul describes elders and deacons. And Baptists have for generations confused those terms. Baptists, and I don't know about other denominations, but I do know about Baptists, we tend to use the term deacon to describe leadership council. That's elders. That's what Paul is describing. The elders hold that position. In fact, Paul wouldn't have recognized the, the term senior pastor, let alone youth pastor, uh, any other college pastor, pastors of children. He wouldn't have recognized those terms. The elders would have been the pastors of the church. The deacons are those that have a good enough character that the church is willing to swear by them and say, this person acts on our behalf. And then the deacon goes off and serves. The deacon serves the community, serves individuals in the church that need service, like widows and orphans. There is no inherent leadership in being a deacon. Now, you can also do both. You can, there's nothing that says you can't be an elder and a deacon. And then, of course, you have Stephen, who his only role was as deacon, but then he gives one of the most impassioned speeches in all of Acts, so impassioned that it gets him killed for it, that wasn't necessarily part of his role as a deacon. He just took up the, he took up the opportunity to preach in the name of Christ, and he did so. And he became the first martyr. That wasn't part of his deacon role, but he was a deacon. Interestingly enough, chapter 3 describes basically three offices. Elders, deacons, and deacons' wives. Part of that is because English translators are not entirely sure what to do with the term deaconess. Mostly, I think, just because they don't want to irritate conservative Christians. Because I think it would have been more helpful if they would have just translated it deaconess. Okay, so let let me explain how I interpret chapter 3. I believe that by describing the qualifications for elders, but not elders' wives, but then describing the qualifications for deacons, but throwing in deacons' wives, what's really supposed to be happening here is there's really no discussion about wives that are intended to be here. Because, and we can have, a, we can have a, a totally different discussion about how fair this is, but we're talking about first century patriarchal society. There is no place in Paul's theology, it seems, for female elders. That a church that is pastored by a woman is not something he's willing to support. That doesn't mean that he doesn't support female leadership. You've got Hunia, you've got Phoebe, you've got Priscilla, you've got Lydia, you've got female leaders in the church he and people he supports. There are, I think you mentioned it before, that there is such thing as women who prophesy in church. So it's not like women should be a total non-factor. It does appear, however, that at least in Paul's theology, that the role of elder should be reserved for men. Then when you discuss deacons, he's discussing what, the, what a male deacon should look like, what their life and character is. The list of qualifications for a deacon is not quite as strenuous as the list of qualifications for an elder. And then even less strenuous is the list of qualifications for a deacon's wife. Unless, of course, you interpret that as deaconess, which I do. That in Paul's theology, I believe that he believes that the church should be led by women, but the foot soldiers of the church who 
do the service and, and, and serve the community and the people in church who need it, that will include both men and women, that there will be deacons and deaconesses. Otherwise, there's not really necessary to, to talk about the qualifications for a deacon's wife unless you're also going to talk about the qualifications for an elder's wife. Because wouldn't it be more important for the elder's wife to be of good character than it would be for the deacon? It just seems like a weird thing to leave out if you're talking about that a deacon has to be qualified, but so does his wife. And an elder needs to be qualified, but crickets. We're not going to mention elders' wives. It just seems to be a weird thing to leave out. I know we're of different denominations who have different opinions about the roles of women in the highest leadership in church. And for my part, I'm almost entirely undecided on the subject. It's, it doesn't feel to me like a hill to die on. The do- denomination I currently serve with does not ordain female senior pastors. The denomination I have been part of in the past does. So it's, it's just not something that I think is an absolute ne- necessary thing that we need to fight and, and, and get into quarrels about. And I don't think it's a, a high sin for any person, no matter what their gender or genitalia, to preach the gospel. I just don't. All right, so I'm, I'm just gonna I'm gonna leave that one set for a little bit. Let's move on to Second Timothy. Now, Second Timothy is Paul's last letter. He is in jail for the last time. I appreciate that the Bible Project guys said that. Well, we might be talking about the the imprisonment at the end of Acts, but we're not. This is not the imprisonment at the end of Acts. Paul's tone, his hopefulness. Everything about Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, the the other uh, letters we know were written in prison, are just very different from 2 Timothy. He seems to have more time on his hands the first time he's imprisoned. I've already told you my theory. I think he appeals to Caesar, and so the Roman governors have to, okay, you're you're a citizen and you appeal to Caesar, we're going to send you. We're not entirely sure what we're sending you for, so let's put you through two more trials to make sure we know what what you are supposed to have done. And then I think he goes to Rome, is sitting in house arrest for maybe two or three years, and then when the Caesar finally gets around to listening to the trial, I think his lawyer comes up and says, all right, we've got uh, Paul of Tarsus, he's on trial for uh, violating Jewish custom, and Caesar says, nah, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not wasting my time on that. And with a wave of a hand, Paul's set free. That would line up with the amount of time Paul seems to have in house arrest, his overall lack of fatalism in Ephesians or Colossians or Philemon, that he, uh, it, it doesn't, he doesn't feel like he thinks the end is near. And then in Titus and 1 Timothy you see a Paul who's out and about. He's doing ministry somewhere. I've heard theories that he is in Ephesus or Corinth or maybe out west. Maybe he's writing from Spain or Idumea or who knows where. He's writing from any, any kind of different place, but he's not in prison in First Timothy and Titus. So I believe that after his imprisonment, he goes on and has more ministry after Acts, but only for a few more years. When Nero starts to lose his mind and things start going poorly for him politically, 
one of the things he does is he starts to crack down on both Jews and Christians. And it is during one of his crackdowns that I believe both Paul and Peter were caught up in the crackdown. Paul is in prison, and now he knows it's a different situation. He's not going to be sent away with the wave of a hand. He's probably going to lose his head. And the tone of Second Timothy indicates this. He knows he's in jail for the last time. He talks about that I've run the race. It's, it's over. I've, I've won the crown. Uh, all the languages su- suggest that, that the end is near. Now, if Paul dies early in Nero's persecutions, then his death and the writing of this letter would have been 64 A.D. Although the church historian Eusebius, for whatever reason, puts it at 67 A.D. So there's a three-year window. At some point in here, Paul is in prison for the last time, and he is is executed. The writing of 2 Timothy and his execution are probably, if not days apart, just weeks apart. They're probably very close to each other. In fact, in 2 Timothy, he encourages Timothy to come see him and and bring bring my cloak and all that stuff. I have a sneaking suspicion that, that Timothy doesn't have the time. That Timothy, even if Timothy left right then, I don't think he would have made it. So I doubt Paul and Timothy saw each other for one last time. I think Paul was taken to on trial, and this time he probably had just about as much of a trial as he had the first time, except instead of a wave of a hand and he's sent away, there's a wave of a hand and his head's chopped off. Church tradition tells us that he was beheaded. Uh, as a Roman citizen, he would have been ineligible for crucifixion. Roman citizen, that was one of the advantages of, of Roman citizenship. You, if you were executed by the state, you would not be crucified. Because if you're crucified, you're stripped naked, you're beat to a pulp beforehand, you're hung on a cross, and that your execution could last days. I've described crucifixion before, that nail in, in each uh, wrist, a nail through your ankle bone here, and you, you basically switch in and out between, <sighs> you're, you're, you're being hung from your wrists, and, and it pulls your lungs up, and you can barely breathe, and your lungs start to fill up with, with fluid. And then you, you just have to take a breath so you push up against the nail in your ankle. Which, I mean, just last week I was whining about whatever was wrong with my foot, which is gone now. And that was just some, some minor muscle or, or, or nerve issue in my, in my foot. Imagine if I had to put all my weight on a piece of iron going through my foot. And so you can't do that for very long. So the crucified individual, hanging there naked, and usually beat half to death, will will vacillate between trying to put all their weight on this piece of iron going through their foot, or through their ankle, and hanging with all their weight against a piece of iron uh, in their wrist. And it's a terrible, miserable way to die. It's humiliating, and Roman citizens were ineligible for it. And so Paul would have been taken out and beheaded, or other, or speared, or in other some other way killed. Uh, Peter, on the other hand, seems to have been crucified. Church tradition tells us he was crucified upside down because he, at the last minute he says, do not crucify me the normal way for I'm not worthy of it. Uh, I'm not worthy of being executed the same way as my Savior, so they executed him upside down. That is almost certainly a legend, but I have no doubt believing that he died by crucifixion, almost certainly by the normal way. And that concludes our discussion of the pastoral epistles as well as all the letters of Paul.
you have enjoyed this production of the Blue Collar Scholar. I am your host, Will Rice. Any factual errors made in the preparation or recording of this podcast are unintentional, and your feedback is welcome. You may contact me at thewillwrites at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-W-I-L-L-R-E-I-T-Z at gmail.com. The Blue Collar Scholar is written, recorded, and edited by Will Wrights. The purpose of this podcast is to educate. Use and distribution of this podcast can only be done by the express written permission of the content creator of this podcast. We hope you have enjoyed this episode, and we hope you will be back to download more. And thank you.